Hello and welcome again to another episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we get to talk about science and all the science that's fit to talk about. Chris, what are you going to be talking about? Well, I'm talking about a story. You, you probably, you guys are probably aware of this one. It's one that I've been meaning to talk about, but I was kind of, it's a thing in the news earlier in the year, but I was sort of waiting until it developed it further and we knew all the answers. We still don't know all the answers yet, but I figured it's, I'm, I'm sick of waiting, so I'm going to talk about it. This is the what is it? The trial, the pharmaceutical trial in France, where someone died in a phase one clinical trial, um, and yeah, look, it's it's been kind of a big news story in medical research. I don't think anyone quite knows how to take it, so I'm going to look at what happened and yeah, try and see what conclusions, if any, can be drawn from it. Claire. Um, I am actually going to be trash talking with you guys later on, talking serious garbage. Um, I'm actually just talking about garbage. Oh, so yeah. so it's different to normal. So you're not just no, talking rubbish. I'm not just talking rubbish. I am talking rubbish. But energetically. Energetically, um, uh, the um, incinerating garbage and all the great things we can do with garbage to... Um, to make sure that it doesn't get into landfill and what some of the other countries around the world are um, doing with their garbage. So um, it's it's actually pretty amazing what, what Sweden and Japan and some other countries that don't have a lot of land, therefore um, can't uh, put a lot of their garbage into landfill, do with it. Ash, your trash. That's it today. Stu, what do you got? Uh, well, you know, um, I'm fighting against your Eurocentric uh, stories of the week and I'm bringing it back to Australia and I'm talking about something that came from Europe and caused huge amounts of problems. Wasn't wasn't white people. It was rabbits. Oh, so I'm going to be rabbits. talking about rabbits and uh, what's being done about rabbits and how in areas where they've brought them under a bit of control, how good that has been for the natural environment. More on that later in the show. Stay tuned. This year, there was a bit of a scandal uh, about a mm. medical trial in France, where, as I said in the introduction, um, it was a it was a trial. It was a phase one clinical trial, and one of the volunteers died. And this has been a bit of a, a big deal, and has caused people to, I guess, to sit back and say what went wrong here, and try and analyse this so it, so it doesn't happen again. But and it, it was definitely because of the trial that this person died. Yes, it was. Right. Um, well, as far as we know, it was. Yes. Well, it w- was because other people in the trial also got sick. Um, yeah. So as I said, it's kind of led to a bit of a questioning of what went wrong in particular, but I suppose on the bigger picture, you look and say, well, you know, does it raise any questions about the way that these sort of trials are run? So I should get, set the situation for you. Yeah. So yeah, this so was what, a... Um, what, what, what were they testing, first hmm. of all? Okay. So this is a... It was a trial being run by a Portuguese pharmaceutical company called Biol. B-I-A-L. Ooh, unfortunate name. I suppose. Yeah. Maybe it's pronounced Bial or something in Portuguese. You want to hope um, so. But they'd outsourced the actual research to a French 
company called Biotrial, uh, who did the experiment in uh, in a town called Rennes. Sorry, R E N E S. That's how pronounce that how you will. Anyway, so yeah, so they outsourced this trial to them, and it was a it was like I said, it was a phase one clinical trial, which I get into what that is in a moment. Uh, it was of a drug. Well, they've been a bit secretive about the actual details of the drug, but other scientists have been able to sort of deduce and figure out what it was. So it was given the the code name BIA ten twenty four seventy four. Apparently, because it's a drug that's under investigation, like under investigation, as in research and that sort of thing, it's patented. So they don't have to legally, they don't have to release the details of the actual drug in question. What they have said is that it was a um, a fatty acid amide, amide hydrolase, or an FAAH. So this is a drug that basically it's it's kind of it's something that acts on the endocannabinoid system. I'm going to throw out all the technical terms here. Endocannabinoid. Yeah. yeah. The internal cannabinoid system. Yeah. <laughs> which is why cannabinoids act in our bodies. Yeah. So cannabinoids they kind of they're obviously the pain relief is one of the things that they do, and endocannabinoid is your own kind of internal pain relief system. Oh right. So. Now, it's obviously, it's a big thing in medicine to have good pain relievers. In particular, to try and find ones that are non-addictive because they have all your opiates and those sort of things which are addictive. Mm. And yeah, people are always trying to find different alternatives. And so what this is, this is, the idea of this one is that there is, um, it's a thing that inhibits a thing that inhibits pain relief, if that makes sense. So there's one of the endocannabinoid chemicals is something called anandamide and this, this, uh, that sounds like a double negative right there. An andamide, an andamide, it's called an andamide. <laughs> and this fatty acid amide hydrolase, uh, that kind of reduces the anandamide in your system. So, this drug, this BIA, whatever, is meant to inhibit the enzyme that destroys the anandamide, which is the pain reliever. So, you keep all your anandamide in your system, yeah, and you can, um, you're yeah. less susceptible to pain. That's the idea. So there's, it's meant to. It's basically meant to encourage your body's natural pain, um, pain relief right. kind of things. So yeah, it's for pain relief. It's also for things like you know, um, they hoping it work for other things like you know, anxiety, Parkinson's disease, a whole bunch of other things that the the endocannabinoid system acts on. So this is the idea. Um, but yeah, it, it the the trial went wrong. So it was a phase one clinical trial, and I should point out how this works. So clinical trials, according to the Australian kind of government information on clinical trials, there are four phases. I'm holding up four fingers of clinical trials. Um, phase one Hope is there's a catchy tune to go along with this, like the decimal currency catchy tune. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, no, phase one is basically, it's phase one is obviously the first of them. It's what you do when you've done all your laboratory tests, you've done um, tests on, tests for safety on animals, they usually do on these as well. Phase one is the first in humans. So where basically you give it to people, you normally give it to healthy volunteers and, um, and you see kind of how safe, whether it's safe or not. Uh, phase two is then when you basically test it on people who have the condition you're meant to treat and that's where you're trying to work out what the best dosage is to actually be effective. And phase three is your big kind of randomized trial where you compare it to a placebo or to another treatment and normally double blinded so people can't tell which is which. And that's what the phase three is a big one that basically determines whether it works or not. But yeah, you have to go through the other two phases before you get to phase three. Phase four is kind of once the drug has been approved and it's on the market, phase four is kind of then just follow up 
trials to see data if, collection from data collection yeah applications. see yeah other t- trials to see their their bad side effects and that sort of thing so yeah phase one is like i said it's a safety one and things aren't supposed to go wrong but they occasionally do go wrong in this case, clearly it did. So what they were doing was they had uh, they had a child that's had 128 healthy volunteers. This is one of the, the healthy people. They've got nothing wrong with them. Uh-huh. And they're each paid 1,900 euros to participate. Uh, and what they do is they basically... So they said 90, 90 of these 128 received doses of the drug and their owner were given a placebo. Uh, and what they do is essentially they give different people different dosages and they escalate it and see basically when something starts to go wrong. And in this case, the the uh, eight, sorry, six participants fell sick. Uh, one of them ended up dying. The other five have now since been released from hospital. Um, they received the highest dose. And yeah, so that showed that obviously something was wrong with the trial. They stopped the trial immediately when they, they started getting sick. Uh, now, there are some weird things about this, I guess, and some things that, that didn't seem to, to be quite right with it. One is that um, giving them a placebo was kind of odd when when you're comparing it to a placebo because you don't normally do that in a phase one trial because you're basically just giving them the drug to see whether it makes them sick or not. See if it has an effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so giving a placebo is a, is a bit strange because you're not... Placebos would be more in like what your phase three... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But the um, one of the reasons I think it might have been is because this was a has you know, effects on the mind and you want to know whether it's a real effect, I suppose, from the drug, mm. if it's giving an adverse psychotic effect or something like that, um, that it's not just a placebo effect that's doing that. So you want to make sure that it's actually the drug that's causing any side effects there and not just some sort of weird placebo or nocebo effect. So yeah, that is, um, that is one kind of weird thing. It sort of stands out. The other thing that possibly is the thing that they did wrong uh, was that they... For safety, you normally only give the, the escalating doses to one person at a time. So then you're only putting one person at risk at a time, effectively. Uh, and then you kind of stop it if they start to if things start to really go bad, which is probably what they should have done here. Um, there was a notable another notable example in 2006, so basically yeah, 10 years ago in England, where it was a drug called TGN1412, I think it was. Um, and that was... Uh, no one died from that one, but there, some of the volunteers were made very sick. And it was a similar kind of thing. This is when after this, they brought in the rules that you only give it to kind of the highest dosage just to one person at a time because, yeah, they basically gave it to a bunch of people. They all got sick, very, very badly sick in this case. And, uh, yeah, they realized that they're putting too many of them at risk. That one raised questions about uh, some sort of practices of medical research. It turned out that drug in question was uh, very similar to previous drugs that had been tried uh, that had had bad side effects, but the results of those earlier trials were never published. And so the people doing the research on this, that newer one, didn't know that it had potentially bad effects. But yeah, this um this latest one in France, no one quite knows what's going on there. It's sort of a a bit of a, a bit of a mystery. There are there are inquiries being done. As I said, it kind of raises questions about the whole process and like whether you would volunteer mm. for uh, such a trial. Yeah. And we need to do these safety things. Is nineteen hundred euros worth it? Exactly, yeah. Um, so, and certainly it, may, it raises questions about the secrecy around these kind of drugs. Uh, you know, I, I think maybe that's a big issue if they had already done trials on similar drugs and had negative effects and were not going to release those commercially, then maybe they should have published those results. Well, we're not saying that had happened in this case. And there are a number of other drug companies around the world that are actually trying similar drugs. And I think most of them now have kind of stopped their trials because until you know anyone figures out what actually went wrong uh, it also I and mean, there are also questions about the 
I guess, yeah, the laboratory testing and that sort of stuff leading up to it, in particular the, the tests on animals. So they had tried it on mice and dogs before trying it in humans. And some of the dogs apparently had to be put down due to side effects, but these were supposedly within the margin of acceptable error and mm. they didn't think that they were anything um, that would affect the humans. And the things that affect the dogs were different to what affected the humans as well. But because it's acting on the brain, you know, animal brains and human brains are quite different. Um, you can question whether, you know, the animal tests actually told you anything useful about the humans at all in that mm. sense. Uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of kind of a lot of questions it raises and it does sort of make you, uh, you wonder about um, what's the best way to approach this. I guess ultimately we do need to, if we want new drugs, new pain relievers or new antibiotics or anything like that, we at some point need to give them to uh, a volunteer who will say, yeah, I'll test it out. It's just a matter of trying to make that as, as safe as possible, really. Long gone are the days where you can go to the tip and hunt through the garbage, maybe find yourself some treasure among the trash. Did you guys used to do that when you were young? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and search around and yeah. find stuff. You, actually, a lot of tips have uh, tip shops. So they do it for you. Yeah. They do it for you. Yeah, yeah. And some places you can kind of, well, they don't like you poking around, but, no. you know, but you can. But you're not going to fall through um, a glass pane of window like I did when I was about eight years old Ooh. and cut yourself. What's no. that doing in the tip? <laughs> Are you okay? I'm all right. Right. Thanks for asking. Right. She just has yeah. a fear of glass. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Can't walk past a window without screaming. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like you said, there's tip shops now. Tips, tips have really changed and they're much more regulated than they used to be. Obviously, we're uh, doing more recycling than we used to, mm -hmm. um, which means we use less space to store our garbage. Uh, but with Australia... We are producing about 48 million tonnes of rubbish per year. How much, how much is that per capita? It's like Ooh. two tonnes per capita, really, isn't it? Because it's like 25 million Roughly. people or something Roughly. like that. Yeah. yeah, that's heaps. That is heaps. That is heaps. Literally. Heaps yeah. Literally and heaps. heaps. Two tonnes. That's <laughs> a lot when you think about it. At this point, not everything, obviously, that we buy and throw out, subsequently throw out, can be recycled. Um, but what's really interesting is when you look at how the rest of the world is dealing with their garbage, um, they've got a, a much better approach than we do. The, um, the whole rest of the world? Or just... Well, okay. Specifically, I'm speaking of places like Sweden and Japan, um, who are not only nations that are recycling large amounts of their waste. Apparently in Sweden, almost half of their waste is recycled. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also incinerating their garbage. So they're burning it at really high temperatures, um, which then generates energy for heating their houses mm -hmm. and, um, and also energy to power their houses. So they're turning it into electricity and they're turning it into heat energy. Wow. I'm thinking of the girl who played with fire and that's what she was doing. She was she was burning the trash. 
So how does that go as far as pollution is concerned? Does it okay. yeah. generate a lot we'll, of... We'll come to that in, okay. in a minute. Um, but what you might be interested to know is how long the Swedes have been doing this for. They've been doing it since the 1940s. Um, and they're really great at it. So they process 2 million tonnes per year of trash, um, which heats... Eight hundred and ten thousand homes. Okay, so when so you they look, don't so yes. I was gonna say, well, trash is a lot of plastic in there. There is a lot of plastic. Yes. So I mean, so first of all, um, first of all, they they remove all the stuff that's recyclable. Okay. Obviously, um, and. Then the rest of the garbage, so it's it's incinerated under really high temperatures. And, ah, as, you, okay. and as you say, plastic, mm-hmm. if anybody has ever stood next to a fire that's had plastic thrown on the top of it, you know how foul yeah, yeah. that gets. Yeah, exactly. And really quickly. It gets very foul very quickly. Yeah. yeah, you always know when someone's accidentally thrown a bit of plastic on the fire. Mm-hmm. It's gross. Um, so the smoke with all of the toxic dust particles is passed through an electrostatic precipitator, uh, which then gives the smoke with all the particles an electric charge. So then these particles are attracted to positively charged metal plates, um, which are then um, shaken off, collected and taken to an ash silo. Okay. Yeah, so that's how they remove a lot of the so basically particles. catch the smoke and keep Yep, so they negatively charge it and then they catch it okay. and then they take it take it off, take it out. Um So that gets all the particulates out of it. Yeah, but then the gases um are then washed out with lime. So the lime reacts with a whole lot of the gas, um, neutralizes it and it gets removed. Um, they do this a couple of times so that they can first get the heavy metals, um, then the acids and then the sulfur dioxides and those sorts of things. And then finally, um, a catalytic converter removes the nitrous oxides by passing the remaining gases through a porous material and then converting them to nitrogen. Wow. Yeah. So the idea is that after they go through this whole process, the gases or the, the garbage goes through this whole incinerating process, that uh, carbon dioxide and water are the only things that are released at the end of that process. Um, and then from the ashes, you get like small pe- you might get small pieces of metal that haven't burnt in the incinerator, um, which are then separated and recycled. Um, and things like porcelain and tile are sifted and turned into gravel, which is then used for road construction in Sweden. So we possibly driving over people's old china plates yeah. when you're driving around Sweden. Yeah, mm. that's a nice thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so obviously the natural question is about the production of CO2 and the greenhouse gases, as you were um, asking before, Stu. So yes, this process produces CO2. Um, obviously it would, it would be ideal if the incinera- incineration of garbage produced no CO2. Um, but on the other hand, if Sweden did use landfills, like the way we uh, we uh, trash our trash, uh, then they would generate a whole lot of methane instead of producing this carbon dioxide, which is 86 times more potent a greenhouse gas than the carbon dioxide is. So just by virtue of the fact that they're turning it into carbon dioxide instead of turning it into methane first, putting it into the atmosphere, and then, um, and then that then... Um, deteriorating into carbon dioxide later means that it's a little bit more environmentally friendly. Certainly better than just chucking in a hole, basically. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yep. Plus they're saving or in the in land. the water in the ocean. And and presumably they're yeah. saving on they're also saving on you know they're not burning coal or something else to generate their heat and electricity. Exactly. Yep. And, exactly. Yeah. So they found that even even with the carbon dioxide that it is producing, they're still having a net a net benefit. Um, yeah, when you when you weigh up all the um, the amounts of carbon dioxide saved and produced. Um, yeah, the the Swedes are so good at doing this now. Um, they don't have enough garbage to fuel their garbage incinerators, so they are asking countries around them to give them their rubbish. And so countries around them, like Norway, maybe Denmark, I think as well, are giving them their rubbish too, so that they can burn it. Sending all their rubbish to Sweden. Everyone's sending. Well, you know, they have shipped rubbish. out IKEA to everywhere else in the they world. Have, so it's, they have. It's only fair that we send <laughs> some of it there's back. There's a lot of AVA records to go back their way. <laughs> I love that. Um, but it isn't. It isn't just highly developed countries using the technology. So as we speak, China is building the uh, biggest um, garbage incinerator, and um, this is going to be in Shenzhen, and it will be. At capacity, we'll be able to burn 500, uh, oh, sorry, 5,000 tonnes of garbage a day. So this is expected to be up and running in 2020. And this is just one of 300 planned uh, garbage incinerators in the next, that they're going to be building in the next three years. 303 years in China. Yeah, so that's pretty amazing. Obviously, um, you know, it isn't it isn't just the Swedes that are on board, but everyone else is um, incinerating trash. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Thomas Austin. Does that name ring any bells? No. 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 Might not be a well-known name, but his decisions have had a huge impact on the ecology of Australia because he was one of the first people to deliberately release rabbits into Ah, the environment. Austin! Was he doing it like trying to control some other pests like wild carrots or something? No. He just (laughs) liked... Let us escape and... (laughs) He just liked hunting. Right, okay. Um, he wasn't the first person to bring rabbits to Australia. They arrived with the first fleet in 1788 and people bred them for food in all the colonies around Australia. Mm -hmm. And they didn't become feral until much later. But in, uh, 1859, Thomas Austin said, Oh, the introduction of a few rabbits could do little harm and might provide a touch of home in addition to a spot of hunting. Well, he couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, by the 1880s, Rabbits had spread from Winchelsea in Victoria, where his property was, to become a problem in most of temperate Australia and many parts of the more arid interior of Australia. Um, So obviously the big issue that most people first got upset about was in agriculture. Mm -hmm. So farmers were worried about competition uh, with their livestock for grazing uh, fodder. 
uh, erosion caused by rabbit warrens. They yeah. have extensive rabbit warrens. And the ring barking of shelter trees and orchard trees by the hungry little bunnies. They just mm. chew around the base of the tree, which kills the tree. Um, Terrible. But the effect on the ecology was far more dramatic in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's not initially wasn't as closely monitored as the commercial effects on farming, but rabbits competed with native animals and marsupials for food and for territory and drastically changed the diversity and makeup of the vegetation, which drew it away from the indigenous ecosystems that were already established. So as early as 1900, the Australian government was calling for proposals on how to deal with the rabbit problem, and they offered prize money of £25,000, which attracted the attention of Louis Pasteur. Got the Louis Pasteur. The Louis Pasteur. The milk guy. The milk guy. The microbiology guy, we should call him. Okay. So, Birthday on the 27th of December. That's right. That, that, that Louis Pasteur. So uh, he actually suggested using a disease that affected poultry, which was uh, a form of chicken cholera. So they actually tried this out. That's attractive. Yeah. Nasty. So they they dosed up a whole bunch of food with chicken collar and fed it to the rabbits. And the rabbits that ate it died, but they didn't transmit it from rabbit to rabbit. So Mm. they didn't think that was an effective uh, control for the rabbits. So uh, it wasn't until about 50 years after that proposal in the middle of the 20th century that microbiology really started having an effect. So... The release of the myxoma virus caused massive outbreaks of myxomatosis, mm. which is a quite awful disease. It makes the rabbits go blind and then they sort of starve to death because they can't find food and they get ulcers oh. all over their bodies mm. and it's it's not very pleasant. But wasn't one of the um, ABC children's shows had a had a rabbit puppet called Mixie? There, there was a there was a there bunch was. of ferals. Yeah, there, yeah. Was all, there was a rat and a rabbit and a feral cat. Oh, that's and, that's really yeah. dark. I, I yeah. never put two um, together. Yeah. Oh, mix. Oh, god. Yeah. So uh, the the, the myxomatosis helped to reduce the rabbit population from six hundred million estimated six hundred million rabbits to a hundred million rabbits in a very short period of time from mm. the nineteen fifties. But the rabbits that were unaffected produced a strain of resistant rabbits, thanks to mm. natural selection. <laughs> and by the 1990s, the population was back up to about 300 million. Oh. So the search for biological controls that would knock out the rest of the rabbits led researchers to rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, or RHDV, a.k.a. Khaleesi the Khaleesi virus. virus. Yeah. Why is it called the Khaleesi virus? It's just a group of viruses oh, called okay. the Khaleesi viruses. Right. So um, Rabbit hemorrhagic... Rabbit hemorrhagic disease, disease. virus. So I like causes, that one better. Causes rabbit hemorrhagic disease. You like Khaleesi virus? And I like... It sounds like more brutal to the rabbits if you call it rabbit hemorrhagic disease. Yeah, Khaleesi virus Khaleesi sounds virus. like something would kill that chick from like Game, of Game of Thrones. Sounds like something Game of Thrones. So they were testing the RHDV on, uh, in South Australia on Wardang Island when it was carried to the mainland in 1995. By so rabbit? Flies. Oh, flies really? carried the virus from, from uh, rabbits, infected rabbits, over to the uninfected rabbits on the mainland. So that actually had a huge impact on rabbit populations. It was almost immediate that the rabbit population started declining and it was officially released on purpose in 1996. And it's had a huge impact on the rabbits, but scientists wanted to know what, the effect on the ecology 
was of getting rid of the rabbits. Mm. So a paper recently published in the journal Conservation Biology suggests that the virus is definitely having an impact on ecology in a number of ways. Removal of the rabbits has meant that many native plant species are recovering and providing habitat and food for many small native mammals, such as the dusky hopping mouse. So this is in arid areas of Australia. You probably don't get these creatures living in the more temperate and wetter areas. But the dusky hopping mouse is a little tiny uh, mouse that hops around on two legs like a kangaroo. Very is cute. it a marsupial? Ma- uh, no, it's a mammal. All right. Um, and they are very cute, but apparently they're, if you drive down desert highways um, with a cool wind in your hair, you will, <laughs> you will see hundreds of, hundreds of these uh, dusky hopping mice nice. hopping around, um, which hasn't been a thing for as long as anyone can remember. Um, and the removal of the rabbits as a food source for feral foxes and feral cats has also meant that the feral foxes and feral cats go hungry and starve and die off as well. So there's been they a don't huge... come after the dusky hopping Well, rabbits. they did. They do, and they mm. did. But without the major food source of mm. the rabbits, the little snack-sized food source of the dusky hopping mice and other little tiny mammals is not enough to sustain them. So there's less feral cats mm. and less feral foxes. So these other mammals still get an even better chance to breed up in their numbers. Okay, but there are still plenty of rabbits out there, are there not? There are, and as I said, this is arid areas. And the reason that it's having a greater effect in the arid areas is because there is another form of the Khaleesi virus, which is present in moister, cooler environments. So hot, dry environments, it doesn't survive as well. But in the cooler, moist environments, this milder form of the Khaleesi virus is inoculating the rabbits. Right, against okay. the. So uh, I thought it was going to be different types of, of rabbits because you know in the in the dry areas you get the the dust bunnies. <laughs> different species, no. Different species okay. altogether. Very different species. Um, okay. We have them in our house. Also, without the competition for grazing that rabbits present, the larger herbivores like kangaroos have also seen increased population. Oh. So kangaroos and wallabies are yep. building up their numbers because there's more food for them. So, as I said, the effect of the virus is most pronounced in the arid areas of Australia because a non-lethal form of the virus appears to be protecting rabbits in cooler, wetter part of the country, parts of the country. Um, but new strains are being developed to be used in areas where the current virus is ineffective. But if the results in the desert are to be repeated in coastal areas, the researchers had better hop to it. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. science.